Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Lennox, how are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Chris. Yeah. Excellent. It's great to see you. And, yeah. Um, we should thank Nick Smith, shouldn't we, before we go any further? Because Nick Nick put us in touch. Uh, Nick's yes, a gr- yes. great, great guy. He's helped me out on the podcast. Um, uh, no end. Just got to yeah. cl- click a button here, mate. One sec. My, my focus is out. Hang on. There we go. Yes. Lennox, you're a man that's lived um, like a hundred lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I shouldn't be here, really. No, I think you speak for both of us, mate. <laughs> but it all it all comes good in the end, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, absolutely. it all comes good in the end, and then we're able to give use our experiences to give something back. Yeah, yeah, that's important. And um, what part of the world are you in at the moment? I'm in the Garden of England in Kent. Kent, okay. Yeah. Are you familiar with like Bromley area? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Okay, yeah. I've done some work over there. Yeah, bad luck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just at a school just down the road from there in Orpington um, yesterday. So um, teaching some year eight students. Yeah, we lived in Orpington, Petswood. Yeah, Petswood. Brom- Bromley. I, d- I won't pretend I remember it. I was quite quite young at the time. But uh, yes, my gosh. Um, let's chat about it all. But c- can we start from the beginning? Your your family history. Sure. What? Um, it's, it's uh, was it St Vincent in the Caribbean? Yeah, St Vincent and the Grenadines. Um, that's where my family's from. I they actually had me here, so. Um, and then um, they took me back to St. Vincent and I was there till I was three years old and then came back to England. But um, yeah, so I've got seven sisters, um, nine really, because two of them are half um, sisters, but they're not with us anymore. Um, and that was with my dad had another relationship before he married my mum. Seven sisters. I'm the only son and the youngest. Mm. And um yeah, so my father came over um, sort of like with the Windrush um, generation and uh, and then um, the rest of my sisters um, followed um, in bits because it was quite expensive to get everybody over together. Yeah. And Lennox, tell me... Um... Did do you did you face a lot of racism in this country growing up? How 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 is it from a you know an insider's perspective? Yeah, I did face a lot of racism, um, and um, I mean, I think everyone knows that um, you know Churchill initially went over to the Caribbean and other countries to um, get help to to um, fight in the war. Um, and there was, um, so a load of blacks came over through that invite. Um, sadly, some of them died on the way over. Um, but, um, 
they fought in the war. Um, and then there was a lot of um, Caribbeans who um, was given an opportunity to come to England and have a um, better life. But when I, um, in my younger days, um, I lived in Oxford and um, there were gangs in every area. Uh, they're called the gangs boot boys and um there were skinhead gangs there were mod gangs there were teddy boys um so there was all these different gangs and um uh the racism i suffered was that um uh, some of the gangs were racist and they used to chase after you and if they caught you they'd beat you up but then going to school um there was only seven or eight of us um from uh, mixed ethnic backgrounds and um a white english boy would stand in the middle of the playground every day about half past eight and he would <laughs> shout blacks against whites and then the whole school would gather at one end with him and there would be us down the other end and in the playground. And um, we had some Scottish and Irish who used to fight on our side. Um, you know, three or four from those backgrounds. And um, teachers would line up in the classroom windows and that you could see them um, betting. <laughs> and... Uh, then um, they would rush at us and it would be a, a tear up, a big fight, mm. you know, and they called us names. Um, I was quite naive initially. I didn't know they were taking the mickey out of me. Um, you know, I've, uh, you know, at one stage, um, I thought they didn't know me very well because they, they thought uh, um, I came from a jungle and I swung from trees. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was uh, one of my friends said, Len, they're taking the mickey out of you, you know. And even to the point where they um, used to tell me I'm going to be all white in the morning, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, oh, no, something's gone wrong. <laughs> but um, so there was a there was that. Um, and it, it, it got worse because... Um, they would wait for us outside school and then they got wise to us sneaking out the back way going across the field and they had gangs outside the front and the back of the school and you had to fight your way through to um, get past and um, I didn't have any fighting experience um, you know I in the end just mimicked what my dad did to me took my belt off and started swinging at them and it created a little space sometimes and I was able to run through but most of the time we we got battered um and a friend of mine who um was mixed race I think back then they used to call them half caste because his his um mum was white English his dad was Jamaican and um she used to live just across the road from the school so she used to come out and chase away the gangs you know to help us get through but um uh, the racism um in, in my school days was quite bad um and um in the community because 
I couldn't go to the shops or anywhere without planning my route first because I knew that where the gangs were and you had to try and avoid it. So um, I had that every day and my parents, they um, weren't sympathetic. Um, you, you know, they just thought I was being naughty. So if I tried to come home and tell them, oh, this gang beat me up and that, they, they would think I just got into a fight and they would beat me on top of that. So it, it was quite difficult. Um, but, um, yeah, so that's what the racism was like. And um, it continued um, through different schools. And it eventually, um, uh, you know, I learned to fight um, through different means um uh i i i I read comic books and learned techniques from um captain america (laughs) nerve pinches i um i managed to because i got taken into care um because i got into so many fights and um i used to steal a lot from shops i um the care homes allowed me to do some judo and taekwondo but um i never done it long enough to be able to use it in a street fight but the judo throws did help me out a bit (laughs) and i did the same lennox i i did a year of judo at school yeah and i'll tell you what i was quite prone to people trying to bully me right yeah i just something yeah i was very, I was quite small and had a lot of stuff going on at home and people could just sense, you know, and that judo just stood me in such good stead. Cause I, I'd, I'd, I'd let them get away, you know, shoving me around once I'd let them do it, you know, twice. Yeah. And on that third time, before they even know it, I'd smashed them onto the floor. I'd yeah. either thrown them over my back or I can't remember. Is it like Uchi Mata? I think they call it, put my leg behind uh, and, and it it saved me. It meant I never I I would never got bullied. But Christ, yeah, you mentioned that. Um, you just put your leg behind theirs and push them. Yeah, and and, and they were on the floor, mm-hmm. and that saved me a lot. It it gave me the upper hand, um, quite a lot. You, you know, so um, I found that really helpful, and um, I, I was fighting this um, uh, white English guy who was a traveler and he had like seven brothers and seven sisters and um his brothers had come to the school to watch me fight him because they they wanted him to stand up for himself and so i kept doing that move on him but instead of making him fall to the ground hard i i put him down gently in front yeah. of his brother. Because I thought, if I hurt this guy, <laughs> they're going to kill me. <laughs> so I've done it so many times, they decided to stop the fight and tell him that, leave it alone. Now you're not you're not winning this, you know. But uh, yeah, so um, it was very difficult because I was scared to go, um, when it was break time at school, I was scared to go into the playground. Um because it was just constant bullying and name calling. Um, the teachers were a bit like that as well. And the school dentist, the school dentists, they knelt on my chest. They were very unprofessional in their uh, 
um, approach to sort of um, treating kids um, who may need a filling or something. And so it ended up that um, they would start treatment but not finish it, left my teeth in really bad repair, and um, which caused me a lot of um, problems later on. Um, the, um, I got beaten badly by... Um, the, the rugby uh it was my form teacher who also took us for rugby and um he uh i got one sum wrong and he got me to bend over in front of the class and he beat me with a slipper um and um th there was a lot of racism like that um you, you know and bad treatment of some teachers the the teacher that was on my side was luckily for me one of the headmistresses um and um she she was really lovely there were some nice teachers but um you know uh the the bad ones kind of outweighed you know the experience you had you know it just really gave you a terrible time and and it just made me rebel it it started to create some rage in me and um you, you know i i swore to myself that when i got older i wasn't going to let anybody mistreat me and um, that started something really bad. And of course, um, you know, it's it, you had the police to contend with as well. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you, I mean, we had what was it? Broadwater Farm, to yeah. Toxdiff riots. That yeah. was really serious stuff. Yeah. Um, for me, I didn't get caught up in that. I had my own version of things. Uh, well, you, you know, with, with the police. I, um, you know, I got arrested a lot. I mean, by the time I was 11, I'd been to court five times. Um, I met one policeman who tried to offer me some wise words of wisdom and said, you know, Renex, if you continue down this path, you're going to be like a snowball rolling down a hill. By the time it gets to the bottom of the hill, it's a big snowball. It starts off small and... You, you, you're starting off with petty crime. You're going to end up with more serious crime if you keep going. And, um, you know, he, he his words were true. Um, you know, so there were these people that tried to offer me wise words of wisdom. Um, you know, my neighbours were really good as well. Um, and they pulled me aside and to try and stop me growing up with a chip on my shoulder, they said, look, the racism that you're experiencing is not the um, views and behaviour of everyone in England. It's just uh, a small handful of um, people who, um, you know, who, who are doing this. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not all of us. And and that really affected me, you know, and made me think different. And then I had um, these war babies whose car I smashed into a wall um i saw this morris minor 1000 van and it had the keys in it and i had a brand new bike i, I put it in front of the car stupidly <laughs> weren't thinking and i turned the ignition on and, and pressed on the accelerator and over the car it went i don't think the handbrake was on i think it was just in gear over my brand new bike it went and straight into a wall but these elderly people they they came out and they took me in their homes and because they were in a care home um you know and uh they they gave me cups of tea and 
was talking to me, which started a, a really nice relationship because I used to go and visit them and they'd share their war stories with me. And going through racism, it made me feel, well, if these people can get through what they did in the war, you know, maybe I can get through what I'm going through. And, and you know, the stories, so, so that you know, horrific stories of how they and their families had to cope in the war. But it, it, it um, I found it all very interesting as a young young child, really. Um, and um, it's always stuck with me um, what these people went through. Um, it, it was very encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we we mustn't forget the sacrifices that that, that you know that that people made, and uh, I think that this last couple of years, I think everyone seems to have forgot the the freedom that they uh, enjoy. That you know that 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 yeah that we should have been enjoying. Um, that's another story. So, how did you get into petty crime? Trying to make friends as a child because. Um, you know, a lot of the my peers that they they were racist, and um, uh, I started stealing for myself um, because I weren't allowed to have certain things, um, and they I, I ended up stealing for them, um, and then their parents wanted things, so I kind of. Um, uh, upskilled and started stealing like maybe a hairdryer out of boots or curling tongs and various things that mums mainly wanted um, that they would ask for. I had this coat that um, you could put your hands through um, the pockets and your hands could come out the front. So I was able to pick up an item and slide it around the back of my coat. And I managed to slide quite a few items and, and be able to walk out because they were, they were, didn't have the alarms then, but they did um, watch you a lot. They, you know, um, a, a black person coming into the shop, we were watched more than um, anyone else. Um, so so um, uh, I, I made friends by stealing um and the parents made their children sort of not be so horrible to me if i got them the goods so mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how i got into it but it escalated because um you know um, i went through different things i was um sexually abused uh from about the age of 7 um i was raped at the age of 13 I was groomed to be in a gang, um, to be a pimp um, at, at the age of 14. And um, where I had been put into care and moved from place to place, I picked up some of the bad behaviour of the boys that I lived with, you, you know, um, and and sometimes girls in the children's home um, who committed petty crime. I got involved with them. And um, as I got older, well, I went to a, an approved school, and um, which was like um, a boys' centrinian school. And um, I committed more crimes in there as well. Um, and um, I wanted to join the army. Um, 
because the place was run by, you know, um, ex-army and Air Force um, guys. And, um, you know, I thought it might be a good career. I wanted to do mechanics in the army. So when I eventually went um, to the army careers, um, I had to take an aptitude test. And my first time I scored 75 out of 100, which was a not bad score. But they said to me, you have to score 80 plus to join the Remy. So I said, so they said, try again in six months. Whereas I thought they should have said to me, why don't you join the, um, the, the transport regiment? learn to drive everything and then try and get a transfer to learn to fix everything. But they didn't advise me like that. And, you know, I had to wait six months before I could take the test again. And I wasn't in in full-time education. So when I went and took the test again, my scores were much less. And <laughs> and um, so I didn't get into the REMI and um, I ended up, trying to um, live life myself. But um, I ended up getting into crime because it was hard to get jobs um, and um, to try and get into a good career. Um, I went round in circles a lot. And um, my fighting skills had improved a lot. And, and I had even more rage. So I was headhunted by two gangs. Um, I was headhunted by a drug dealing gang who um they the, all their guys who they used as enforcers um and um they used to rob other drug dealers so they can control um a bigger area they all um had an accident um because they went to rob a drug dealer um, and they took with them, foolishly, imitation firearms. And the drug dealer lived in a townhouse and they got to the top floor where he was and held him up. But he noticed that <laughs> the guns they were using were imitation. So he um, put his hand behind the sofa and pulled out a real gun. And they all kind of crapped themselves and jumped out the top window of a townhouse and broke arms and legs. Um, so this drug dealing gang, you know, had, um, heard about my reputation because I was committing crimes myself and, um, I was doing it successfully and they wanted me to work with them. So, you know, um, I agreed in the end and they used to use me as an enforcer. Um, there were other drug dealers who borrowed drugs off them on credit um, didn't pay on time or didn't pay it back. And they sent me to get the money back. Uh, and I always came back with it. And they used to send me to places like Brixton, sometimes to score kilos of um, cannabis for them. And there would be gangs outside waiting to rob you. And um, so I never got robbed. Um, I went prepared. <laughs> and I... I sort of lived like I had nothing to lose. But I was also headhunted by, um, I, I used to go to a particular pub, we called the Labour Exchange. And it was called that because lots of criminals used to use it 
and um, it was where they went um, to have a drink and to get a job. <laughs> so you could go there and people would tell you about um, a burglary you could do or an armed robbery and stuff. And there would be people who um, had nicked loads of food and stuff from the supermarkets, um, big roast joints and stuff, and you, you could get it cheap. Um, and this guy from an organised crime gang in London um had heard about me and he he um we had a drink together and then the next thing i knew he, he was taking me to london and um i met um a group of people in in a bar in um a posh bar in marleybone and um uh i ended up with a mentor who owned a jeweler's shop at the um and lived at the back of oxford street with chauffeur driven the people i met i met bankers and other business people who were part of this gang um there was east end gangsters who were around for the craze some of them and there was um solicitors um through some of the work i'd done for the, there were solicitors involved who used to um, represent criminals and also take drugs in um, because at one stage they weren't searched because they were from the uh, illegal team. And um, there was even corrupt police and corrupt, corrupt politicians in there, um, you know. But um, the corrupt police and politicians I never got to meet. I only got to hear about through the other gang members you know and and plus um at one stage they wanted me to commit a murder because there was a there was two um multi-millionaire um guys who had a grievance they had racehorses and one of them was poisoning the other one's racehorses and he wanted to pay to um have him killed and um, the money he was offering initially was um, just a few grand. And my mentor said to me, don't do it for anything less than 100 grand. And so um, the price was agreed. And um, so I, because we used to go to rugby, there was an arms dealer up there. We used to buy our guns and stun guns from. And um, so... Uh, that's where I would have got my, uh, I thought I need to get a sniper's rifle <laughs> and take this guy out from a, um, a, a distance. Um, but before I could do it, I had to do this job. I, I think they had something in a safe. Um, I, I was taken to um, a travel agents where they had a safe um, and there was lots of money in there and traveler's checks, but there was also something else in there that they wanted. They didn't tell me what it was specifically, but um, I, I went there um, with um, the guy who had introduced me into the gang. You had to wear suits and everything. I couldn't be dressed like I am now in a tracksuit. Um, I only dressed in a tracksuit to commit crime, but I so I wore suits all the time. And especially to go to a posh bar in Marleybone. Um, and um, so the one of the managers, a, a manageress of this travel agents, show, um, you know, took me and this guy in after it closed and showed me where the safe is, showed me where they keep 
the the combination to the safe in a book on a bookshelf. Um, she left a um, small toilet window open and uh, was big enough for my mate who was really skinny to get through. And um, we were going to do it on a Saturday. The football was on, so the police were occupied. And um, uh, so I waited outside while my mate got in. And um, uh, apparently the manager, not the manageress, hadn't locked the safe. And he, three hours, three hours he was in there and he came out supposedly empty-handed. Um, and he, he said he couldn't get into it. And so I was really disappointed because with this organised crime gang, there's no room for failure. I, I did everything they wanted. I made sure and got away with it. Even went um, jogging and training to prepare my mind and my body to be able to do certain jobs they wanted me to do. I did 22 armed robberies. And um, so when he was telling me, oh, he couldn't get into the safe, uh, and that, um, and um, you know, time had gone on and everything like that, and um, so it became a bit unsafe to be hanging about outside this shop. I never saw him again, so um, it could be that he got what he was supposed to. A week later, I had gone there with someone else, and we did an armed robbery of the place, and we cleaned cleaned the safe out and got away. But um, you know, what they wanted wasn't there. And so that was the start of my relationship with them breaking down. You see, did you ever find out, Lennox, what it was? No, I didn't find out what it was. Um, but they weren't interested in the money. You know, I think there was about forty grand um, in cash and travellers' checks, and I never found out what it was. So I could have, I was allowed to have all the money, um, but they wanted this particular thing. Um, but I'm sure my mate got away because he 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 just disappeared. He he just was not seen ever again by any of our group, and he was a regular. Um, so I put two and two together and thought he must have got it, but I, I couldn't get at him, you know. So um, yeah. <laughs> But uh, the, one of the strangest things was um, I was introduced. I had to go to Paddington Station, and um, I met a guy at Paddington Station who introduced me to one of the biggest drug rings, organised drug rings I've ever seen. And he showed me um, around at Paddington Station, and he used to point out different people someone on the platform, you know, he, people in the offices, um, the guy at left, left luggage. And he said, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that they were involved in anything. And he, he, he says, um, he was telling me that um, uh, they were involved in the drugs ring. So they had walkie talkies. Everyone knew when the police were about, they were steps ahead you know, and they operated a massive drug ring from Paddington Station. Um, it, it, you know, being involved in that type of organised crime with those types of criminals, you know, bank managers who who um, did fraud with um, big shares. 
mm-hmm. you know, and they had yachts and various things, that, uh, you know, and went on lovely holidays all the time. Um, uh, it, it was an eye-opener, you know, compared to um, these wannabe street thugs who, who operated drugs, you, you, you know, um, and um, the drugs gang wanted to control all of Oxford, but there was a couple of guys who wouldn't join them, and they also had competition with um, uh, some of the Indians and and um, uh, people from Eastern um, Europe, and uh, and I, they did want me to take out these Indian guys, but um, they also wanted me to. Um, try and force these black guys who wouldn't do it to sell drugs for them. And I, I said, no, I ain't going to sort them out for no reason, just because they won't work for you. And um, so they knew what kind of person I was. So they, in the end, they told me that these black guys, um, they were giving drugs to children, class A, um, you know, cocaine and heroin to little kids. And that was enough to make me think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take them out. So I went to one of these guys' houses. I didn't have any balaclava on or anything. Didn't um apart from my knife, I didn't carry anything else. And a couple of black guys um who had been injured and now healed up. Um you, you know, oh no, um, yeah, now healed up from that jumping out the window. They came with balaclavas and guns. And um, so I knocked on the door and the guy opened and we came in. We didn't know the house was under surveillance. And I made him, um, we, we sat at his dining table and I made him get his his drugs and he got a big pile of heroin. And I said, you've been giving drugs to kids. You're, you're going to sit there and eat that. <laughs> so... <laughs> And he was begging for his life. <laughs> mm. And um, he he was trying to tell me, oh, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I, I, I've not I've not given any drugs to kids. And, uh, and I was, t- whilst I was grilling this guy, these other two guys were robbing his ass. And he had a big Rottweiler dog. His missus was hiding in another room. And, um, you know, within a short space of time, of this happening there was a knock on the door and someone shouted out armed police and everybody just ran we ran upstairs the two guys with me jumped out the window one got away and the other one was fighting his way through police because he was a kickboxer and he pistol whipped one officer so bad it nearly lost his eye his eye was sort of almost detached from his socket um and there was police everywhere and i had nowhere to run so i went into this big wardrobe got all the clothes and covered myself with it and shut the door every now and again this dog would come sniffing around and um i was in there for about four hours (laughs) until the um scenes of crime officers came and it's when they opened the wardrobe and the clothes started to move that they freaked out. They thought, this is a ghost. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so his, the, the guy I was grilling, he he kept coming and saying, 
um, shouting from a distance that it's okay, it's safe, come out. And I and I could still hear radios, and I thought this is a setup. Um, but um, yeah, I um, ended up getting arrested and going to prison for that. And um, I made this guy I was grilling come and see me, and I said, "You're going to tell the police that um, I wasn't there for that." You know, I didn't. Um, you know, because I was I wasn't wearing a balaclava or anything. I I only was invited there by you as a friend. And he uh, um, wrote down all that we said in front of one of um, my mates um, after the visit and to send to the police to get me off. But because my mates from the drug dealing gang, they were using people to bring me loads of drugs in prison and um, I was getting rid of it. I was making lots of money. I think I was making £100 a day. And so what they decided to do was not to give that letter to the police. They wanted to keep me in. And when I found out about it, I was upset and angry with them because I wanted bail so I could be with my girlfriend and that and have my freedom. And, and they just wanted me to keep selling drugs in there for them. And I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I had to take the business away from the existing drug dealers in the prison and where I didn't take heroin myself, I gave bigger amounts of drugs. Um, I used to have um, a drug addict who used to test the heroin for us. And, um, you know, we gave bigger deals and before long, everyone came to us. And so we, we controlled the heroin and was making lots of money and everything. And and then these the, this Indian guy was going to get robbed and... He was part of the Indian gang that um, my gang wanted me to, you know, um, to sort out. And um, so he came to me for protection and him and his brothers paid me lots of money, gave me more drugs to keep his their brother safe. And I did that as well. But, um, yeah, I fell out with the drug dealing gang. I said, what you've done to me is wrong, you know, and... Um, if you ever come in here, I'll make sure you have the worst experience ever. I'll get people to rape you and stuff. I told them, <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. Is it like, was it like that in the prison? Did did these horrible things happen to people? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, one time um, this guy um, was getting raped every day. But where I'd been sexually abused and raped, I had said to this guy, look, we can stop that happening to you. And he was so terrified. He said, please don't get involved. You know, I'm so scared what would happen. But we tried to convince him, me and, you know, a couple of boys, that we would proper sort this guy out. He won't be in any position to harm you again. But he just wasn't convinced. But he, the violence was bad, yeah. There was a lot of that. Um, you, you know, um, there were guys who got into debt and they would say, right, we don't want the money. You're going to work the debt. You're going to clean my cell, iron my clothes, make my tea, clean my toilet. Um, you know, because I'm doing a long time, you're going to kneel down and bend over when I tell you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there was things like that. You know, there was um, a guy who came from another prison and um, 
he um, was in this cell um, and this guy in the cell said to him, have you let your mum know that you've moved prisons? And he said, no. He pulled out a mobile phone and um, said, ring your mum, tell her you're, where you are and that. And so he rang his mum and before his before um, he could say, um, before his, his mum could really speak properly, he grabbed the phone and told the mum, listen, I've got your son here and you're going to bring some drugs up for me or else we're going to hurt your son every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not laughing because it's not funny. but No, it's it's just, I get it. It's just extreme. Can I tell you a little story about my, yeah. my, my mate Simon, who's in a couple of the books I've written. Uh, he's dead now. God bless him. But he was in Dartmoor, right? Same. And I know you, you've you been in, in, in Dartmoor, Lennox, right? He said one morning, well, in the evening, when they when they locked the cell doors, one, one lab was sharing a cell with a Chinese guy. He said the Chinese guy pulled out a, you know, like the toothbrush with a razor blades on it. Yeah. And he held the other guy down all night long, like cut, just cutting him, cutting him, cutting him and raping him. In the morning when he opened the cell, the little lad, the young, you know, I think he was a younger lad, he just like, he just ran out naked, head to toe in blood, ran straight to the governor's office, right? The Chinese lad, picked up his, you know, his water pot and went to get water for a cup of tea. <laughs> as if nothing happened. Yeah, as if, as if nothing. Jesus Christ, I don't know how, you, I don't know how you'd ever get over something like well, that. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I was on a unit in Dartmoor where everyone was in single cells, but there were some who were sharing. Um, there were guys who was... Um, who used to wedge their door because um, at night um, screws prison officers would open their doors and give them a hiding. So they, they started to wedge their do door so that if they did unlock the door, they couldn't get in. Mm. So um, there were things like that. Um, I, I was on um, an exercise yard and there were two black guys having a fight and you know the, the officers there's two officers who are in a cage and they're watching and um but they didn't call for help straight away i mean the way it works is you know if the officer had a dislike to you maybe you told him to fuck off or something um on a previous occasion and and now you're in a fight and you're losing He's going to turn to his mate and say, oh, did you see the football last night? <laughs> you know, while you get a pasting and and then blame you for it. But anyway, these guys were fighting and the one who was losing started to run. But there's nowhere to run because you have to walk around in circles where well, you used to at one stage. And then they kind of relax that rule and let you just hang about if you want as well. But um, so there was nowhere to run. And in the end, he got tired running around, running away from this guy. And the other guy knocked him to the ground, knelt on both arms, put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a razor blade and turned his face into a jigsaw puzzle. Um, you, you know, um, so, but in Dartmoor, um, 
there was um, a, a guy who used to drink his own urine and eat his own feces. And, um, you know, uh, there were um, guys with mental health issues who walking around um, just um, with their body not looked after, their hair unkept, and uh, sometimes their trousers um, falling down and they didn't care and th there were sort of all sorts of issues there was racism because um, all the uh, prison officers who got into trouble in other prisons for perhaps being involved in the death of an inmate perhaps um, a, a female officer has had sex with a prisoner um, all those types of issues um, you know they got sent they got transferred to Dartmoor prison um, you, you know, and um, one officer was being was racially abusing a black guy who was a boxer, and he took it for three months. And then um, uh, one morning, when he opened the black guy's door, the black guy pulled him in, shut the door, and all you could hear was screams where he was beating him. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, uh, you never saw the black guy again because you, you know, in the punishment wing in Dartmoor, you just see you see a lot of blood on the walls and the floor sometimes because the officers, they get their own back, you, you, you know. So um, th there was a lot of, I mean, there was a group of guys who ran out of tobacco and they they cut holes in their pillowcases because Dartmoor's so far away from everywhere. You see all weathers in a day. Um, the water is greeny brown um, and it's, it's really um, a harsh place. And um, they used to send you up on the quarry um, and you used to have to smash stones. <laughs> that, that was one of the jobs. So uh, it was, and um, people um, used to talk about the Dartmoor stair because there was so much knife crime that people made sure their backs were to the wall. Um, you know, they were scared to expose their, the, their back because someone would come up to them and stab them. You know, people sometimes had... Um, you know, magazines around their waist, and you know they took precautions. Um, it was, and and they they talked about the Dartmoor stare because um, everybody was kind of like they had this look to. They didn't trust anyone. They stared. Um, it, it was a horrible experience um, to to be in Dartmoor. It was cold, um, and you didn't have a lot you, you know they weren't the facilities there that you would see at some other prisons um you know but um i think the way they did the visits and things because you, you would stay overnight at one of the guest houses and you could have all day visits and your visitor could leave and go to the toilet and then come back and you could sm so um i think there was a a, a way to smuggle drugs easy you know and it kept the prison a bit quiet but there um it had a hell of it had a huge number of inmates and um a large population of it was escapees guys that had tried to escape and failed and they were put in these striped overalls and and there was lots of them there it was a huge prison um but the, the these guys these group of guys they made holes in these pillowcases and they robbed the the, the prison canteen and um they, they jumped over the counter because unlike in some prisons where you fill out a form and you hand it in and they bring your your canteen for you in Dartmoor you was actually allowed to physically go to the canteen 
and queue up and, and and order what you needed if you had the money in your private spends. But these guys, they they went there and they jumped over the counter, beat the officers, and <laughs> they robbed loads of tobacco and everything. Um, I mean, where are you going to go? There was nowhere for them to go. But like, there was a lot more tobacco floating about the units than than there had been. <laughs> you know, they, these guys. I mean, they they got severely punished for all that. But um, mm. it was such a crazy place. You know, um, my my uh, friends' kids, right when they was teenagers, young, young, like we're talking like eleven, well, maybe about um, twelve or thirteen. They, they, my friend lived at Princetown. Which friends at home? That's where the that's where Dartmoor is. It's up at Princetown. That's right. And, um, they found an escaped prisoner like living in a garden shed. Wow. And, ra- and rather than hand him in, they started smuggling him. You know, bringing him food and everything. Right? Oh, wow! Yeah. <laughs> and it got <sighs> it got in all the papers that these two boys had been looking after this. Uh, I thought that's a lovely story. Yeah. Well, there was a couple. There was a guy who escaped in the swill bins from Dartmoor, you know, and um, that that was in all the papers, you, you know, but he, he he'd got away, you know, and then um, uh, these twins in another prison had swapped, I'd <laughs> swapped um, places um, uh, and um, because they, um, I think the prisoner was actually allowed to wear, because you can wear your own clothes in some prisons if you, um, put an application in, and people would come. Your visitors will come and um, bring you clothes, and and then you would hand some out. So they were dressed the same. I think um, the Crays did that at one time, didn't they? The Cray twins. Uh, I think they swapped places at one time, and when when the officers found out, they had to let him go, of course, because he was in. You know, the the end was no charges against him. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, I don't. Uh, I didn't hear that with the craze. I, um, but like, um, I know this. These guys were in um, uh, a prison in Wales, um, in Cardiff, and um, that was big news in the papers. But yeah, um, there was lots of escape attempts uh, around the country. I'd, I'd been to sixteen different prisons, um, and um, yeah, it was Dartmoor was. Um, a horrible experience, but the guy, one of the guys who helped me, Brian Greenaway, he wrote a book called Hell's Angel, and he was the leader of a Hell's Angel chapter. He turned his life around. He used to visit me in Wandsworth, and um, every day, and, and um, coach and mentor me, and um, you know, he helped me to turn my life around as well. Mm. But um, yeah, Dartmoor, it's a horrible place. You know, they come out. If you're in a single cell, well, it didn't matter. It's single or double. The, the light switch is on the outside. And so the, the officer used to come round at night, 8 o'clock, and turn your light off. No, 10 o'clock, you, um, turn your light off. Um, you know, and uh, it was horrible. There weren't no toilets in your cell. You had to um, use a bucket to do your business. Um, it's a horrible place. Officers were horrible, you know, mm. but... Um, yeah they got a, an amazing museum up there um just out on the other side of the road from the prison there's a the prison museum and yeah. it's fascinating to see all the weapons and and yeah. the, and the, all the crack pipes and all this sort of stuff 
and they used to make um prison ooch um yeah uh yeah it is i've seen lots of um because i used to take kids into prison and they used to show you all that stuff as well and um so they, they've got that kind of thing in, in in prisons around the country you know confiscated weapons um i mean some of the are uh, um the creativity of prisoners to make the weapons that they they did you know it's just amazing mm. it, it, it's, but there's also that thing where you hook a you hook a cable up to the strip light do you know that one and you you even though it's just one cable you can run your electrics off it well people tried to um make tea in their plastic cup but i would say about seven or eight times out of ten when they hooked the um wire up to the lighting system it blew all the electric along that side of the landing so um the whole um until someone um sort of held their hands up that that whole side of the landing would be punished Mm -hmm. they'd be on a kind of lockdown regime while the other side would be okay and so that's what used to happen um but um i never tried to do I've, i've been in a cell when my cellmates done it you know and um you know he's blown the lights um, um the, the odd time it works um because you really have to know what you're doing um you get a kind of warm um cup of tea and we we had tea leaves and so he would put the tea leaves in a sock and <laughs> make the tea like that it was disgusting <laughs> but that's what we used to do yeah did you ever try and escape lennox i tried to escape yeah but um i, I didn't try to escape in the way some guys have of um i thought i'd try and get myself to outside hospital so i um well, i mean i used to use the gym a lot and i, I was quite quite a wimp when it comes to um pain and stuff you know so my cellmate uh, in the end um i got him to cut my hand he's cut my hand um because i tried to do it with a blade and it didn't go deep enough i thought if i do that they'll take me to outside hospital and we did it at night and also i put a claim into the prison um because we had like we we'd got the um an old um sort of blanket to use as curtains and i said i was um standing on a chair and i slipped off and, and my hand went through the glass so i i, I um I, I um said that but um so he cut my hand deep they took me to outside hospital but what they they handcuffed me and then handcuffed me um to a prison officer who had a long chain and they took me in the hospital and um you know i had a car waiting a guy in a car outside the hospital waiting for me to get out the football was on it was busy and i wanted to go toilet so they came with me and they um uh let me go in one of the cubicles but there was this long chain attached to one of them and um so i, I couldn't get away and then when I was in the hospital bed, they cuffed me um, to the um, bed as well. 
And the doctor told them to uncuff me from the bed. And they said, no, not until you put him out. <laughs> so, so I had this injury for nothing. <laughs> and um, so while my hand was injured, that's when you get the officers, they'd be a bit more horrible to you because the moment you um, start to react, they'll grab that bad hand, you know, so... Um, and even the doctor, when it came to taking the stitches out, the prison doctor, um, he, it was, I think it was around the Christmas time, and he was, I could smell the alcohol off him, you, you know, he, he, and um, I didn't want him to touch my hand because he, he just wasn't in the right um, condition to be doing that, uh, you know. But, yeah, so I've got this massive scar, I lost the, um, I've, got, I've got tingling in one of my fingers. Um, so I've got unnecessary damage through trying to escape. Um, so the other, other places I would have tried to escape for, from was magistrate's court because uh, I, where some people have jumped over the um, dock and ran out. Some have got away and some haven't because there's loads of police around Um and that but so um i wanted to try that and um i remember one time um i didn't jump over the dock but i was downstairs in the cells magistrate cells um with a co-defendant of mine and we planned because it was um retired policemen who were looking after us and you know there were a couple of them that was overweight and we thought oh yeah we could overpower them and, and get out but while we were waiting, because, you, you know, after your case is dealt with, often you have to wait till about um, half or five o'clock before they're ready to take you back to prison because they want to take a full van um, or as many as possible. So um, so while we were waiting, we had some cannabis and we smoked some cannabis. And um, the the guy I was with, he, he was the kickboxer from the other job and um he thought yeah he's gonna do it you know and so we were waiting one at a time behind each other um and they had the van open and one of the police officers came to grab him and he started so he thought right i'm gonna smack him um it was all slow motion he he was unable to fight properly because he was so um, relaxed from the cannabis and his movements were slow motion. Uh, it was just weird to see. And the officer, being an overweight guy, he just kind of, um, uh, <laughs> he just like twisted up his arm, put it behind his back and got him in a hold. I was stuck and chucked him in the van, um, you know, so easily. Um, whereas this guy, he, he did kickboxing. And if he hadn't been under the influence of cannabis, he would have been able to um, move. But it was all slow motion. And um, I just couldn't believe. So that kind of put me off from because I'd been smoking as well. And I, I thought, no, nah, it's not a good time to try it. You know, you need to have your wits about you.
But um, yeah, so I um, and also I had mentors in prison who were old school criminals, and they used to teach me how to fight, not to fight the the, the officers, but to fight. Um, you know, by using you know finding out about the rules and 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 using that to fight. So I used to they used to make me go to the library. Um, read the standing orders, which and and you know you learn to do things like if you're getting searched, you can accuse the um, uh, officer of you know feeling up your your groin, you know, and um, you know so you, you did things like that, or if you had a grievance with a particular officer and he was going to lock you in your cell, um, you let him do it, and then afterwards you maybe headbutt the um the bed with your nose make your nose bleed smear the blood over your face and 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 then you press the emergency bell and and tell the officers you want to see the governor this officer that locked you up called you a black bastard and he he punched you in the face (laughs) (laughs) you know and prisoners i mean they they got into fights with each other and then they got another um prisoner from the kitchen to throw some butter on the floor and they made out they slipped um a couple of guys got paid from the prison 800 pound through something like that so my mentors my criminal mentors they they taught me to fight that way rather than fight them fist whereas there were other big inmates who used to fight them you know even um charles bronson he used to um, take them out. Um, he'd wrap the his t-shirt around their his knuckles, and he'd he'd fight them. Um, but um, that wasn't the way. That just got you into more trouble. Whereas if you used your head and and found these little ways to, you know, you could get a lot more. So so that's what I was taught. But I also I spent years learning um studying law. Um, and um, I used to read the law books that they use in courts, um, and I used to read them with a dictionary. And um, you had to like apply to use the, to to get the the law books, and um, you you know you'd get it, and you were allowed it for a certain time. And I, I wanted to learn to defend myself because I didn't want to leave it just to my solicitor and barrister. I didn't want to be sat in the cell thinking, oh, I should have said this and I should have said that. So I learned to defend, I learned so well that other prisoners used to bring me their cases and I would um, help them how to get off. Um, and I was so successful at it in the end. <laughs> and um, so uh, even though I spent um, a long time um, in prison on remands and various other sentences. Uh, I used the time to try and learn about the law so I could understand what was going on in court and how how to um, get my story right and everything. What will the um, jury believe? And uh, so I did all that. Lennox, tell me, right? This is fascinating chat, by the way. Um, did you ever fall foul of the old drugs yourself, or did was it always just like purely sociable? No, um, I broke my own rules. Um, I, I fell foul of um, uh, drugs when I fell on hard times, um, broken relationship, 
um, um, that had really hurt me. I ended up um, paying for a prostitute and my head was um, so, um, my head was so um, messed up, you know, that I wasn't enjoying uh, the act she was doing on me. And so I kept her there for, I wouldn't pay her. I kept her there for a long time um, until I, until I thought she had sort of um, satisfied me, but I, I dropped my wallet. Uh, it fell out of my pocket and she picked it up. I didn't know. She gave it to her pimp and they took the money out of it and everything and left all the rest intact. And the pimp called me on my phone and said he'd found my wallet and arranged to meet me. And um, he um, uh, took a swing at me. I was still under the influence of drugs, but um, he took a swing at me and whacked me in the head with a claw hammer. And, and then we started fighting and got him on the floor and that and and then the poli there was a police car um who was watching all this and they came and they wanted to know if i wanted to press charges or i said no and i tried to tell the guy um you know when the police weren't there um i'd spoke to him i said come and meet me again you, you know well i spoke to him on the phone i told him to come and meet me again and I'll show you how to hit someone in the head. <laughs> um, but he he backed off. This was in Northampton. He wouldn't. But um, the rules were um, that you you don't get um, drunk or or under the influence of drugs, especially in another area. You just do it in, in a safe space with your friends and everything like that. Um, through difficult times. Um, you, you know, uh, like I got into debt um, playing cards, poker with um, some friends, and um, they, uh, when I lost, um, they made me, they said, right, if you drink this bottle of whiskey, we'll cancel your debt. And so I drank the bottle of whiskey, but when I got down to the last shot, <laughs> I went to pick it up and knocked it over, <laughs> and they said, all right, that's cancelled, and I saw this can of beer and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll drink that can of beer instead. And they said, all right. I didn't even get halfway with the can of beer. Uh, it all come out. And so to cut a long story short, they they said, right, I'll tell you what you do. If you want the debt cleared, there's this guy who we don't like and we've got grievance with. You take care of him and we'll cancel your debt. So, um, I'd fallen on hard times um, and I, I I didn't have my usual weapons and thing. I, um, I think I found um, this vanity kit in my friend's bathroom. I pulled out uh, the scissors out of it and used it as a knuckle duster. And I went to where this guy lived, knocked on his door. He answered the door and straight in the face with it and um, I knocked him unconscious Um in his doorway um and and left him there um and went back to the guys and said yeah i've sorted him out 
and they cancelled my debt. But um, so things like that, you know, um, I did. I did some stupid things um, um, through drugs, but I didn't realise that drugs was affecting me. It made me paranoid. I, I I became more evil in in my violence. Um, you know, there was a guy in Manchester who, um, I, I, again, I was on hard times and um, he robbed me of some of my possessions. And, you know, I, I got a knife and stabbed him in the eye. Um, I was going to stab him in both eyes because I thought, if you're blind, you ain't going to be able to see to rob anyone again. You know, I ended up doing um, several months in strange ways on remand and then through having learnt how to defend myself in court, I was able to get acquitted, but it cost me, you know, um, and, um, yeah, so drugs uh, had made me have this other evil side. There were times then I could be a nice person, but um, there was this other side that was violent um, and um it affected me. Um, this sounds but, like coke. Is that am I right? I did do some <clears throat> coke. Gave me a short fuse. I did do some coke, and that um, I did coke. I did. Um, I did a lot of ecstasy. I did um, a lot of cannabis. I, I did some hallucinogenic drugs, um, <clears throat> um, like acid, um, but um, the drug that I had most of the time was cannabis. Mm. Um, what put me off was I saw what cocaine, heroin, crack cocaine, and some um, and speed had done to other people <clears throat> that I knew, how it affected them. And it, it, it made me think that if I got into it like that, um, it would make me either like them or worse. So I dabbled in the other class A drugs, but so when I did cocaine, um, I if I, I snorted it and smoked it, and um, I um, I didn't have it as regular as some of my friends. Um, I didn't touch crack because I saw some huge guys who had um, started using crack cocaine. And not only did it change their personality, they lost so much weight and they became vulnerable. And I think as a criminal, you can't afford to be vulnerable. And if you're going in and out of prison all the time, um, you, you can't afford to be vulnerable. You, you, you could lose your life. Mm. Um, and so I had to be careful. And, and so that's why I stuck with the cannabis most of the time. But I didn't realize that it, was having the effect, you know, um, I carried, I was tormented day and night by my, by my abuses. Um, I was traumatized and, um, you know, even as, you know, I said I was with a prostitute, but at that stage I'd already had some help to deal with the effects of the rape because before that I, um, I couldn't have people touch me and in prison and sometimes out of prison, I would see guys messing about and 
they tend to shag each other up the bum and stuff like that. And I used to, I, I, you know, and then when I was in um, uh, Grendon, I saw a, a lifer who was wearing makeup, had his legs shaved. He used to wolf whistle after another prisoner. And I said to the officers, I said, listen, if this guy does that to me, uh, um, I'll kill him, you know. And um, they said, oh, he won't do that to you. And um, so I struggled to have that interaction. You know, the, the guys who were messing about, they were, that's just how guys mess about. Um, it doesn't affect me today, but back then. Um, so um, <laughs> I forget where I was going with this. Um, the the, um, uh, the drugs. Well, yeah, I mean, you're... you're what a lot of people watching won't understand and and that's fine but you you're battling serious childhood trauma aren't you yeah of course you know and of this course. is where this is where these behaviors are they, they're like a defense mechanism because you know it, I, and i you know i'm a, i'm a i had a lot of childhood trauma as well and you you'd be quite surprised lennox how similar i never went inside but i i can relate to uh, you know, I can I can relate to just doing extreme things my whole life and not understanding why I've always been so extreme. You know, in later life, fortunately, it was like adventure sport and stuff. But in my in my younger days, it was a lot of you know crime and um, or not a lot, but I went through I went through my crime period, and it's crazy when I look back. Would I hurt anyone? No, no way. You know. Yeah. But back then, I had honestly convinced myself this is how I needed to live, and it was fine. It was fine to go around, you know, taking stuff off other people, um, because like, what the fuck did they care about me? Yeah, you know, that was my mentality. And and again, no, I saw myself as kind of like a Robin Hood at at one stage because people used to come to me to. Asked me to sort out their problems, mm. you know. I, I I stabbed a lot of times a, a drug um, dealer who was robbing single parents of, of money. They would buy, you know, a bit of weed off them um, because they wanted to have a bath and a spliff after the kids are in bed and just have a relax. And this guy would take the Mickey and not give them their money's worth and sometimes give them rubbish drugs. And um, so I, I, I took, I would take care of him and give them money back and stuff. But what I was trying to say with the sex thing is that well, uh, being in a gang and being involved in girls and having wanting to show yourself as normal, I, um, when it comes to being with a girl, I had to, try to perform you you couldn't be yourself and i couldn't allow people I, I couldn't have a girl or someone think i'm some weirdo because i can't have sex or something like that so i had this kind of act i, I would become it was like schizophrenia i mean i i would become this other person and my whole um, aim was to make sure just to please this girl 
So she would say nice things about me. I had to hide my abuse. And um, so in my criminal days, I did that. I had help when I was 18. A girl helped me to actually have penetrative sex because I didn't know. I was, And I was so damaged. And it, it was an emotional experience. But after that, being in a gang and having to try and be normal, when it comes to girls, women, um, it was just a performance. It's only like in meaningful relationships can you be yourself. Mm. You know, I, I was so damaged. And 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 um, if I thought someone was um, having a go or, you know, making me feel a particular way, I would approach them and, I, I, and the next thing I would lunge at them with a knife if I didn't have a gun to shoot. So Lennox, just before I want to talk about, you know, your, uh, let's just use the word recovery. You, you know what I mean? Um, your way out. I mean, but before, um, I do that, I just want to ask you, what's it like to go on an armed robbery? And did you, were the guns loaded or, or were they just for show? Um, uh, the guns on some occasions were loaded, but there were times when um, you didn't have time to um, get a loaded gun. Um, guns were expensive and um, uh, sometimes you could borrow guns as well. Uh, but uh, what it was like, when I got better at committing armed robberies because initially you don't always get training to do a good armed robbery or to use a gun we ended up going to Newbury into some woodlands and firing guns to learn how to shoot them you know um but to when I got better at it um because we had um guys in the post office who um you know the organized crime gang they had people everywhere and they used to pay people for information and things but the post office people used to tell us stop using your mobile phones to talk about jobs they said the police um are intercepting um these wave um airwaves and um so that we ended up using walkie-talkies um we also started using stun guns, um, not like the stun gun we we had. They were more like cattle prodders at first, the ones that we got. Um, and I remember one time um, we wanted to test it out. And so me and a couple of boys, we waited in an alley and we thought, right, the first man that comes down this alley on his own, we'll test it out on him. And um, we... When this guy came down, we approached him and started shocking him with the stun guns just to see um, how it would be, you know. And um, so we so we used to do that. But um, what it's like being the adrenaline. So I got to a stage where I wanted to make sure that I did everything to get away with the crime. And so um, I had to prepare myself. Uh, give you an example. I couldn't be with my girlfriend and her children and be playing with the kids and 
um, having that um, family time and intimacy and then go and do an armed robbery because the switch from that role, you know, was um, too quick and it made you make, make mistakes because so what I had to do whenever I wanted to do an armed robbery, I had to um, go take two, three hours out um, and kind of prepare your mind. As I'd go jogging, I'd be thinking about the job, um, and I would um, just um, try to stir up this kind of other side to me that I could, um, you, you know, be viciously violent, if I had to, to someone, I, because I needed to make sure I'd get away with the money. Um, uh, on one of the occasions, um, uh, a woman had the bag of money and I tried to grab it off her. Now, I had my mentors from the organised crime gang across the road watching what was going on. They used to come and watch me at work. And... Um, she wouldn't let go of the bag and I had to beat her um, to get her to let go of the bag of money. And um, she did eventually and I got away and um, in a short space of time, the police had got their helicopters and they'd got police blocking almost every exit to this estate where I was at. Um, I, I was taking the takings that, um, from a, a pub that I, um, I was asked to do. And I got away, but I ran over garden fences and things, and there was this um, house, and um, the, the people in there, they let me come in their house and, and sort of hide. So they made me drinks and stuff. I gave them some money from what I'd taken, um, and, um, you know, Thankfully, because of their help, I was able to escape the police. Um, but um, the adrenaline, um, the rush, um, you, you, you know, um, it, it's um, your heart is racing, um, you, you know, and you have to put on an act. Um, you know, one of the um, jobs I was doing you pointing a gun in someone's face, you, you're telling them, open the fucking safe or else I'll blow your face off. Um, you know, and any attempt to delay what you're doing, um, you know, you're striking them, you know. Um, I, I put the gun in front of a manager's face. <clears throat> he started to take his time a bit and I whacked him on the back of the neck and he went to sleep. And so I had to get, other staff members to um, open the safe and stuff and had a guy standing by the door to take care of any customers and things, um, you know, and uh, on another job through organised crime, the head bouncer of a nightclub we were robbing, um, they, um, the, the head bouncer owed my gang, my drug dealing gang, money for drugs. And part of the payment, he had to leave the fire exit door open and let us know when the 
managers were coming out with their takings. We went there, balaclavas, stun guns, guns, handcuffs, walkie-talkies, we had all that. And um, we shopped them up, um, beat them a little bit, handcuffed them to the railings, took the money. Um, we put it in a parked van that we had um, pre-prepared and we went to a safe house and then a, a guy would come along on his motorbike, open the van, take the money and take it to our safe house, you know. Um, so we did things like that. Um, but um, as you get more experienced, because uh, one of my less experienced times where I was unprepared, I didn't even have a gun. I just had like a rounders bat. <laughs> yeah, had a rounders bat. And what had happened, I w I'd gone into uh, um, the... Um, uh, the, the label exchange pub <clears throat> and the landlord had agreements with the pub next door and they were right next door to each other. And so he gave me inside information. He wanted me to rob next door, me and my mate. And um, uh, we've done it as a spur of the moment thing because the pub next door, they had gone away on holiday, but there was one guy um like um a nephew or something uh, one of their family members was looking after the pub so we went there at night and got in and um i we had cut sleeves off a jumper put holes in them and um it's quite comical because like when i put mine on um i couldn't see properly and it kept moving <laughs> So when I confronted this guy, I used to have to lift it up, bash him, and put it back down. <laughs> so there was lots of um, uh, dialogue of me asking, where's the safe and everything? And we managed to get there um, and uh, clean the safe out. And um, I also found some uh, another place where there was um, a few grand hit hidden but um, yeah, we we beat this guy, but I had to keep lifting up my my mask because the holes were moving. It was like a scene out of um, Django, <laughs> you know. If anyone has seen Django the film, when they got the uh, and the Ku Klux Klan have got these hoods on and they can't see, well, I, I couldn't see. <laughs> it was pitch dark, um, but when I lifted it up, I could see a bit. Um, and so, um, uh, you, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, if you're unprepared. So there were times when I had real guns, um, you, you know, real bullets. Um, but there were times when um, you had to improvise and you didn't, you, you either had imitation or you didn't have a, access to a gun because it was short notice and the person who was supposed to bring the guns um got into a few problems you don't hear all this stuff when you watch films you know it just all seems to run so smoothly but in real life for for me at the time it wasn't so smooth there were times when you you got lucky and you did a job and you, you got loads of money um i went to bournemouth to do a job 
and we took um real guns with us and um it was supposed to be 90 grand in this um manager's hotel room or whatever and there was a few of us there and um uh we got into a few problems uh, because we the way we dressed um brought attention to the staff and um some male staff approached us in the lift and in the end they 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 realized these guys are not um customers they come to rob the place and so we they started fighting us and um we pulled out well i pulled out a gun and while i was fighting with them um it went off boom right in the lift, you know um but um you, you know because of that um, we realised that the noise would have drawn a lot of attention. There'd be armed police coming. And so we had to cut our losses and escape. Yeah, there were times you had to improvise. Um, it's a scary experience because you can't prepare for the unexpected. You don't know that when you're doing your robbery, um, an off-duty policeman might be going about his business and he clocks you or clock something that you're doing. You don't know if um, a member of the public, um, you know, has realised what's going on. And because of their training, it, it could be an ex-soldier or something who thinks, do you know what, I, I'm trained for this, I can take take these guys out. You, you just don't know. And you can't prepare for the unexpected. You try to prepare as much as you can. It's like, um, we... we um, wanted to do a jeweler's shop and get loads of um, Rolexes. And so what we done, because um, it was a time when there was a lot of um, terrorist bombing, IRA and stuff. And um, what we'd done, we got someone who could speak in an Irish accent to phone the police and tell them there's a bomb um, at a certain place so that they would all go there and leave us you know we wanted like 60 seconds to um you know you get in the shop and um you, you get the watches from the front but you also get some from the back you had 60 seconds because before in 60 seconds they're not going to be here and um yeah so it, it's very scary because you just don't know um if things are going to go smoothly or what you know um we used to um phone up get someone to phone up the police and say there's an altercation in this block of flats at the top floor and um you know this guy has got a knife or something and he's threatening people with it the police would come and go up to this this address and our car thieves will go into their car and take their um their overcoat with their fluorescent thing on saying police and, and um, any spare hats and things there. So that's what we needed because we were going to um, rob a a bank when they first come there or when the manager first comes there to open up. And we took some petrol with us, um, pour it over him, um, you know, type in the right code or we'll torture, you know. <laughs> and... Um, We'll shoot him in the kneecap. Next one's in your face, you, you, you know. So we 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 were like that. It's a very scary it's, it's experience to do an armed robbery um, today. 
um, you know, where there's less money being used, um, you have to be smarter. Is um, you, you know, you either have to be a tech person um, to be able to uh, do fraud, get money fraudulently, and get money transferred into accounts. Or, or I mean, but the, trying to rob a bank, I don't think they keep as much money there as uh, as they used to. So it's it's not the same. You're going to be disappointed. So you have to have your information right. If you're going to try and steal cash from anywhere, you've got to have your information right. Otherwise, um, you're going to come unstuck. But it's a scary experience running away um, from the scene, um, you know, choosing the right time, especially where, you know, you've got these protesters holding up traffic. It's, it's a prime time um, to do a robbery because um, it's hard for the police to get through the traffic you'd need to be get, uh, getting away on motorbikes um so that you can get away um you know so you have to think like that you, you know if you did it, but it's a very scary experience and you know 22 armed robberies it it gives you a bit of experience um you may make a lot of mistakes at the beginning but as you get as you do more and more of them you get a bit more experienced you know what to look for what to do um, but I used to eventually prepare myself and make sure the guys that were with me also prepared and did jogging and stuff like that. Um, you, you know, we it was just so hard to come from playing with little children one minute and then the next minute you're doing a job. It, um, it messed with my head. So I, 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 if I was with my girlfriend and her kids, um, I'd have to make sure I took enough time out to change, to find this person who could do that job. Otherwise, it messed with my head too much, switching from those two scenes, those two roles. I, I just couldn't do it. And so, Lennox, what, what was your sort of wake-up call? When did think, when did you have like a bottom, rock-bottom moment and you thought this can't go on? Or, or what happened? Well, falling out with both gangs was, for me, um, kind of like worse than or th having a relationship breakup, really. And I didn't have the security of the organised crime gang. Um, one of the guys in the organised crime gang, he let me down on a job I was doing, and he was a lookout. And when I said to my mate when I was about to open a safe let me just have one quick last look at the window i saw all these police cars with lights flashing no noise and the guy who was supposed to be keeping a lookout was on his phone he weren't even alerting us um so that led to me falling out with them and i, I took him with some other guys to some wasteland and we poured petrol over him and was going to torch him um because uh, i said you put our lives at risk you know you you can't come on a job and, and and be slacking like that you know um you should have alerted us that the police have gone because what happened we triggered an alarm when we moved the safe um and um you, you know if i didn't go and have a last look i, I would have been caught so um 
there was a breakdown in relationships with these gangs. And I realized I was willing to put my life on the line for, for them. And they, they weren't the same. They, they, they made, they did silly things that put my, me at risk. And I thought, you know, should I really be associated with these people that were letting me down like this? And, um, it made me angry. It made me rage. I wanted to take them out. And, um, so, um, one of the things that came to a halt was I, I it was with that travel agents and I did the armed robbery a week later and we got away, but we went to a safe house and we gave this young 18 year old, uh, money, uh, guns and our clothes. And we put it in a bag and he was supposed to take it to another safe house and we were going to meet up there. But on the police radio, they said um, they were looking for any black man with a bag. And he, who wasn't involved in the robbery, was walking um, across the road and the police car was coming and it pulled him over, searched the bag and found this evidence and um so he got arrested now ordinarily in 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 um my circle of criminals if someone takes the rap for you it's your responsibility to look after them while they're in prison and their family you know and if you don't you you know um you you're worse than a snitch do you know what i mean your 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 name is mud it's it's just one of those rules um and so I got to find out that this young man was the grandson of a guy who used to visit me, visit my parents' house when I was a little boy. And he was always very nice to me. And, you know, uh, he used to speak up for me when my parents were being too strict and horrible to me. And when I found out that he's the grandson of this man who I had every respect for, I thought, I can't let his grandson go to prison. So I called my solicitor and I told my solicitor, listen, I um, I, I need to have an interview with the police and um, um, do a deal because they got the wrong guy and everything. And my solicitor, who used to prosecute corrupt police in Australia um, and, and, and had to move out of Australia because he'd, done, he'd won a big case and his life was in danger, he was trying to beg me, no, you know, they don't know anything about you. They're not you just leave it alone. And uh, I I was relentless. I wouldn't. So we got to CID and they we I told them this isn't the right person. I can tell you who is, but I want immunity. I, I, no prosecution for me. They went back to their superiors who agreed on the condition that I not just confessed about that crime, but all my crimes. So my solicitor, against his better judgment, decided to go with what I was wanting, and he made sure that everything was, all the I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed, um, and they done the deal. When this kid went to court, um, they... Um, the prosecution stood up and they had all the evidence on the table. 
and they um, stood up and they said, Your Honour, we offer no evidence against this young man. The press ran out of the court and this case went to Parliament and the CPS wanted someone to pay for it. So the police now started to look back through the evidence that I'd given and they researched and they found a thumbprint of mine and they decided to prosecute me. The CID came to me and they said, we're sorry, we made a deal with you, but our superiors are going to stab you in the back. And so it went to Supreme Court. Um, and my barrister was six months fighting my case. And in the end, the Supreme Court said to the police, they said, you made a deal with a criminal. And um, all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed. And they said, you made a deal. And so you have to stick with it. And um, so they, because um, I, when I confessed all my crimes, I, I only confessed about what I did, not about who was with me or anything like that. That was part of it too. And so um, now I look at my DBS and there's lots of crimes missing <laughs> um, because they had to wipe it out. Um, and so um, what's happened now? Um, when I When they released me from prison, I met with my barrister and my solicitor and the police came, um, one of the heads of police, and they handed me these letters and they and the, the letter said that there's a contract out on my life and the money paid. And they advised me to get out of town. They said, because, um, you know, someone's put a contract out on you. And um, I spent uh, a little bit of time finding out who, trying to find out who's put a contract out on me. And I went to my enemies, I went to the gangs, um, and there was no one. So I thought the police had done this because I had won my case in court. And it was at a time when the police were trigger happy. You know, they were making arrests, house arrests, with armed police. And before you know it, someone was getting shot. It was the wrong person getting shot and things like that. And I thought, because um, I'd been arrested by armed police about four times. And the last time they they came they you know they caused so much damage and everything and arrested me and my girlfriend and the kids and um i thought what they're going to do is they're going to um come and arrest me shoot me and say we thought he was going for a gun because it was um i was known to use guns and knives and i was uh, i was called by one of the judges a very violent and dangerous man so they were telling me to get way out of town, not just up the road. And so I, I travelled the country, um, you know, getting out of town. Um, and um, uh, I used the letters to get benefits. I had a supervisor who used to deal with my um, claim. Um, the council used to give me um, flats in different areas, um, you know, and um, I lived like that for a bit. But um, uh, so, so I, I fell on um, difficult times um, trying to rebuild my life um, and um, move around as well, um, you know, because I, I had to watch out for the police. I knew about 
corrupt police because they were in the gang. <laughs> and um, so I had reason to be worried. And I thought, okay, I've done a lot of dirty work for them. But these kind of organized criminals, they know people in the forces. You know, they, they knew, knew people who were a gun for hire. And, you know, so I started... You know, I, I didn't think myself as any big man. I thought, do you know what? Um, they could get someone. I mean, like we used to pay drug addicts, give them a gun, give them loads of drugs, shoot this person, and they'd do it, you know. So it, it was very easy for the organized crime gang. I mean, the guy we poured Petra over, because um, I wanted him to give me what I lost. And <laughs> the moment he got his freedom to try and get me some money. He was out of the country, um, you know, so, but yeah, so I, that I eventually ended up homeless on the streets of London. Uh, while I was homeless, I was up and down the country in different places and um, eventually settled more on the streets of London. I was homeless. I'd, I'd got nothing. And um, I was going through a terrible time in the winter. It was a very cold winter. And um, I was, my body started to shut down, lost so much weight um, uh, where I hadn't eaten for ages, um, for, for um, some days and, and uh, hadn't drank much water uh, or any water. And my mouth, it looked, just looked like, or felt like I was in a desert and, you know, you're trying to get water. My mouth had changed color. Um, and um, I, I thought, I'm going to die here. So I didn't want to die on the streets of London. I remembered that a judge said to me, if you get caught convicted for another knife crime effect, um, offence, you'll get sent to prison for the rest of your life. And I thought, that's got to be better than dying on the streets. And, um, you know, I can hide in prison. I can, um, I'll probably be the only person that wants to be there. And so I, it took me a week to find a man on his own that I could pick a fight with and, and hurt, you know. So because on Oxford Street, there's loads of families, kids. I thought, I don't want to traumatize these kids, you know, and, and hurt one of their family members in front of them. Um, so 11 o'clock at night, I met someone at a cash point. I uh, asked him, you got any spare change? And before he could answer, I stuck a brad or in him and he um, um, screamed and he dropped his wallet. For a few seconds, I thought I could grab that. And I'd forgotten what I was trying to do. And instinct and adrenaline took over and I decided to run. He decided to run. And... Um, we were running in the same direction, side by side at one stage. And he looked at me, I looked at him, and he screamed and ran the opposite direction. And, you know, it was only afterwards I thought, why did I run? I wanted the police to catch me. Um, but I'd run to the end of the road and turned left, and I saw this alley, and I ran towards this alley that was really dark. And as I got into it, I, I, I thought, wow, I've never known a darkness like this. I couldn't even see my own hands. 
Um, and I had to feel the walls to, to find my way through this alley and bumped into these industrial bins and sat between them. And I sat there sobbing, you know, and it was while I was there, you know, and thinking, oh, God, please help this guy. I really didn't mean to, I didn't really want to hurt him, you know, I've used him to for my own selfish needs. That's what I was thinking in my head. But then this other experience happened to me right there while I was sat there. It, 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 I mean, it amazes me now that I had this particular experience. Um, <laughs> I'd like to share it with you, but I don't know if I should or not. You yeah, you got you got to now. You, you got you could read it all in the book. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna give uh, uh, we're gonna give your book a good shout out and put up a few thumbnails of it. But uh, I had an experience in the alley that made me get up and find a policeman and uh, go to the police station and hand myself in. It, the experience freaked me out. And I ha handed myself in. They got me two CID that were like six foot odd. And they said, Lennox, we want to hear all your story. Several hours I was in there talking to these guys. One of them ran out and to get more tissues. They they were emotional about some of the things I was sharing. And they said to me, do you know what? We're going to get you the best lawyer in London. And I said, I don't care if you get me Mickey Mouse. I'm not really fussed about um, the consequences. And um, so anyway, I ended up in prison. I wrote a letter to the judge. I told the judge I did it. I said, throw the book away, um, throw the key away, throw the book at me. And um, I saw him with my letter. And the judge was telling me, I'm not going to give you life. I, I don't think you really meant to do this. And I ended up with like three years, um, you, you know, but that experience, um, ever since that, I... I, I just um, was looking for help. I, I had therapy from um, a counsellor in there. Um, I had that gang leader come and see me every day, coaching and mentoring me. Um, you know, I, I still, I mean, I, I got a job as a cleaner and someone spat on my floor uh, and I threw a dirty T-shirt at him to clean it up. He wouldn't do it. And so I started to follow him to his cell. I thought, I'll take your effing head off mate <laughs> and um i was stopped by that experience i had in the alley and challenged and i i ended up didn't i, I calmed I, um I, I i diffused the situation but um you know it did i i couldn't it didn't stop me wanting to fight people and hurt people who crossed my path but you know when it came to it somehow because i had decided to make a change i had to diffuse the situation um and and that change continued when i got out um you, you know i've been running this charity for nearly 18 years be 18 years in in january can you tell uh, us a bit about it it's um i came out of prison and 
um, I was asked to talk to a 40-strong gang in South East London who were using guns and knives, terrorising the community and having other gang fights with other gangs. And they wanted to know about prison, so I told them all about prison. And they sat listening for a couple of hours and girls were starting to confess that they'd been sexually abused and raped. Other guys decided, you know what, I don't want this life. One guy ran away to Manchester and um, it freaked me out. I thought, gosh, um, looking at these guys' faces and girls, they just look like little kids on on um, big bodies, you know, because um, they were big for their age, some of them. And um, I thought, how can I prevent them from going through a life like mine? My my now wife had asked me, what do you want these kids to do? I said, I want them to refocus their life. And so that's where I got the name from. But so we started, I started doing these talks. I was invited places to discourage young people from a life of crime. And um, I, I worked for nothing for a year um, and then eventually started to get some funding for travel and stuff. Weren't in it for the money, but I thought I can't say sorry to the people that have been hurt at my hands. You know, I've stabbed people in the face, in the neck, and various other places. I've beat the crap out of lots of people and robbed lots of people. And I said, I can't say sorry, you know, because they're not going to take sorry and think, oh, yeah, you're, you're sorry, so we'll, let, we'll forgive you. But what I can do, I, I, I thought I could still say sorry, but what I can do is I can try to prevent other young people taking up a life like mine. And I thought that would be a good way to say sorry, you know. And so that's that's what I started doing. Mm -hmm. And um, thankfully, it's been going really well. I've rescued hundreds of kids from gangs. Um, you, you know, I've represented kids in court and um, helped them get off and helped them to make a change. Um, I've helped a lot of adults and families, um, and um, it's it's been good job satisfaction. You, you know, I just hope that the people that have been affected by my crimes, you know, can one day find it in their heart to forgive. But you know, um, uh, anyone listening to this might see me smiling or laughing when I'm talking about certain things, but I am um, sorry for all the hurt and pain that I've caused others, um, you, you know, and um, I know that just saying sorry isn't enough, um, but, um, you, you know, I really do take the work I do seriously. I'm, I, I'm transparent about my life story. Um you know, my son, who I hadn't seen since he was 15 months old, grew up in America. Now he's in the UK. He ended up in a gang and he's killed someone, stabbed someone. And um, he's doing 22 years in prison now. Um, he's got about seven years left. Um, I, t I tell him he, he wishes he listened to me because he didn't listen to me when he was going to court. And I saw the family of the person that he killed he was an 18 year old boy and his 
his mum and sister was at court and they were beyond broken and they wished my son would rot in hell. And, you know, I tell my son, I say, every time you have a bad day in prison, remember you're still breathing. I said, that family have no hope now of seeing their son, who was a drug addict, um, you know, make a change. He killed this guy because he robbed him of £10 worth of crack cocaine. Um, so the boy died for a tenner. Um, so, you know, I try to, uh, I mean, my son has made a lot of changes, of, you, you know, and the prison of sin that, you know, this, this guy, he, he doesn't seem the same sort of person as he was when he came in. But, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't change. I mean, this family has lost um, their son, their brother. And, um, you know, uh, I try to help my son now to, um, you know, make that change. And I'm making some headway. The proof will be when he comes out one day, if he does, because you don't tend to get parole first time. He has to do every day of that 22 years. But if they refuse you when you go for parole after 22 years, you've got to wait three years before you can apply again. So it'd be 25 years. And if they refuse you again, you wait another three. And, that, and that's how it goes. And then when you're out, you're on license for life. But you don't get out straight away when they say, yes, you've got, a, if you're in a Cat B prison, you've got to work your way to a Category D prison and get a date of release and um, things like that. So, um, yeah, I am really remorseful. Um, you know, I wish I... Um, lived a different life I, w I wish i um stayed and was a father to my son and my daughter the kids at school when i go to schools and teach kids about how easy it is to get trapped into gangs and stuff they say to me you know what's the worst crime you committed you know and i tell them the worst crime i committed is I wasn't there for my son or my daughter. You know, um, I've been kind of like, on the streets they call you a waste man. I've been a waste of space, really, a, a poor excuse of a father, I, um, a sperm donor, um, you, you know, and I wish I was like some other men who, who stuck around for their kids and, and, and been a part of their life. I mean, now I am with my son and my daughter, but it's taken years. So now I specialise in helping to get kids to break that cycle of offending, um, and I rescue them from some of the gangs that they're involved in and try to help them to change their thinking so they change their behaviour. But, um, yeah, I'm not... Um, I, people say to me, well, you had an abusive life yourself, but I think I could have made better choices. I made some bad choices. And I don't think that being racially abused, being raped, being, you know, was an excuse to go and hurt other people. I think I should have taken the advice of some of the good people that tried to encourage me and, and, and change my path for my own selfish gain. Why is knife crime so prevalent 
I'm going to say in the black community, but I have had a, another arm robber on the show who said, no, Chris, it's equal black and white, right? I don't know if you've got a view on that. On this show or when I'm doing my talking to the camera, because I'm a qualified youth worker, that's my my degree. And I, I actually did my university f um, thesis, they call it. I, I did it on gangs. That there's a lot of absent fathers and, and and therefore a lack of role models. And these young men are angry. They don't fit in. At, I say young men, but young men and women, but they don't fit in at school. They can't apply themselves. So therefore, they're not going to go to, you know, higher education. So they're not going to get the Rolex. They're not going to get the Mercedes. And therefore, A, they're really angry, which is why they'll, they'll pull out a blade. And B, they'll go into things like, you know, county lines and this kind of stuff as, as a source of income and, um, and prestige, I suppose. Yeah, um, it, it's... It's a mix of things. I think for a lot of kids, um, one, they have tried at school. They have met um, difficulties with teachers um, not helping them progress. Um, some of the kids have got some mental health issues or problems with ADHD and things um, and, and learning. Um and so some schools just like to manage move them to pupil referral units um, where it's more difficult to learn because a lot of the children there have got issues and they're very toxic with each other. Um, but um, some kids, white and black, um, they... Um, listen to their parents talk about how difficult it is um, those without a father feel some of them without a father feel that it's their responsibility to provide to take on that male road there are some young carers out there and there are some young there are some young carers I take my hat off to because they're not getting involved in that but they are doing all they can um to look after a parent who might be disabled or whatever. Um, there are others who have allowed themselves to get involved in to the gang culture. But um, there are these kids who also have been traumatized by um, things that have happened to them in their childhood. And um, so it just so happens that a lot of um, there is a lot of black children doing it um it's it doesn't seem to be highlighted as much amongst some of the white kids you know but um from my personal experience of working with children there is a lot of white kids who are caught up in it um and and also with, with, with knife crime i mean i've spoken to so many adults i mean um there was this white mum who put herself on the news and she said she doesn't she don't let her boys leave the house without a knife <laughs> you, you, you know because she thinks well it's not safe out there and i'd rather um you, you know you come home than not <laughs> you know um but there is a kind of um false belief out there that everyone's carrying a knife 
and um, kids are so petty with some of their um, arguments with other children um, and um, they're, so they've decided to carry a knife to defend their self. They feel much safer. Um, and um, But I've met a lot of adults who um, have got something in the boot of their car. They sleep with something under their um, pillow or, or bed. Um, you know, um, women who carry weapons in their handbags. Um, you know, none of this is highlighted. I've met... Um, because of the demand for drugs, there's, I've met grandmothers. Oh yeah, I enjoy a good spliff and everything like that. And you know, but the, but yes, there is a lot of attention drawn to these young black lads. And yes, they are, and 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 a lot of them have come from difficult backgrounds. That is a very true, um, you, you, you know, um, thing about these groups of people. Um, that they that they've come from difficult backgrounds. They're either one parent families. Um, they they're on low income. The demographics of they 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 live in um, a poor area, and um, and and then you've got these um, gang members who have profited from crime, and they flaunt their um, profits um, and they. Uh, and they try to make it look it's very easy you you, you know to um tempt these children um you, you know they, they'll give them money to buy trainers to buy clothes and th they'll just be nice to them and they'll be like a sugar daddy and take them under their wing they'll sort of, you know and the kids if you're going through a difficult time i mean if someone had done that to me i i would have um been um uh easy led to to you know attach myself to this person because they're always nice to me they give me money they um you know i can buy things for myself um and so um you, you know people are seeing that a lot you, you, you know um and then you, you know where the gangs have um done so well that the, the the National Crime Agency said they're making, you know, a couple of billion pounds a year from this drug trade. Um, but they're, they're meeting a demand. But the gangs, they know how to manipulate these kids. They know how to exploit them and groom them um, um, and trap them into doing this. And, you know, you have to think, well, if you want to trap these kids into these gangs you've you, you've got to put fear into them they have you, you know because if you don't they'll decide oh i ain't gonna do this anymore so um they do um they have sexually abused them they've raped boys and girls and filmed it and threatened to show it on social media sites or to their families um they, they've beat them badly um, and these kids who um, are trapped into this um, lifestyle um, end up doing anything um, to um, make sure they um, do what they're supposed to do. They, they disobey their parents. They miss school. They go missing for days and weeks uh, where they're in a trap house learning how to hide drugs on their body, how to... Um, prepare drugs, all sorts of things. 
There's been an 11-year-old girl who's had to sleep with different boys in a trap house to pay her way to stay there. There's all sorts of atrocities. I was asked by social services to work with a 17-year-old boy um, in Dartford who was initially from London, and his job was to actually sexually abuse girls and boys and physically abuse them too. It's only that he... Um, the case of his crimes took a different turn. So I didn't get to actually work with him because, you, you know, I can't work. I'm not allowed to really work with sex offenders because I'm working with vulnerable children and adults. You know, then I may have been able to give some advice, um, you know, but he, he was damaged himself. So, yes, you're right in, you, you know, there is a high number of black kids who seemingly get involved in this, you know, but I think with the kind of education and things that is getting out there, um, there are some kids who are staying away from it, you, you, you know, but, you, you know, I, I go into schools and I, I hold up a hundred pounds cash who wants a hundred pounds? There isn't a hand that isn't up in the air. I said, all you've got to do is hold my bag for five minutes. I'll show them what's in the bag first. I say, I won't um, try and fool you. I'll show you what's in the bag first. If you still want to hold the bag, then after you've seen what's in it, then keep your hand up. And when they, I, I show them the drugs. And as I'm showing them the drugs, I'm telling them what the British law says about having these things in your possession. And and, and if you give it to anyone else and what the, what could happen to them as children for doing that. And there's so many hands still up. And there's black hands, there's white hands mm -hmm. from all backgrounds. You know, money knows no colour, you know, they, it, um, and everybody wants it. And sometimes I say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm feeling generous today. I'm not just going to give you a hundred pound. Uh, um, I'm going to give you a PlayStation, a PS4 as well. Or, you know, I add these things and, you know, they're even more excited, you know, or, you know, um, I, I, I say, well, you, you know, you can either have beans on toast tonight or you can have steak and chips, <laughs> you know, you can pay your mum's fuel bills. You can buy your shopping, you know, mm. every hand. And, um, all right, there are some hands that do come down, but, you know, they're tempted, especially if they think they'll get away with it. But um, so uh, um, I, I showed them how easy it is to get trapped. Um, and um, I'll share with them some of the case studies and, it, you, you know, it freaks them out. But I, th I think because of this type of education, I'm seeing a lot of kids who just seemingly know people that have got involved in it, but they're not doing it. They're too, you, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the wrong thing is to be tempted by the money. But when you're, when you've got the cost of living crisis and various other things going on, it's very hard to walk away from free, easy money. Mm -hmm. So it's the best time for these criminal gangs to commit crimes and to exploit children because the government 
um, the judicial system doesn't seem to be, um, you, you know, exercising their laws. Um, now you can, some kids, if they get trapped in it, they can get out of it through modern day slavery act. But I mean, I've got a 15 year old boy who's in prison now. Um, and he had a good day selling drugs for these gangs. He's a mixed race, a black young guy. And, um, he used to have a knife down his tracksuit, big knife. And it's the common practice of some county line gangs to reward the kids when they've had a good day selling drugs. Now, this kid um, was given a girl. Go and have sex with this boy. Now, anything the gang tell you, you've got to go and do. And these girls in the gang, they, got a, they hide drugs in their hair, um, on their person. They'll, they'll um, hide weapons. Um, they will be used to um, have sex with um, and, and perform other sexual acts uh, for any of the gang members. So they gave him a girl and he went to a wooded area so she can perform an act on him. He took the knife out of his tracksuit but and put it on the floor and I think whilst they were getting it on, they were interrupted by the girl's friend. So they never finished what they were doing. And the girl's friend, I think she used to be with this. She, she's um, had sex with this guy before, got a bit jealous because he didn't want her anymore. Um, and um, uh, so she ended up telling the girl's mum, but where he thought he, the girl was 14, she was 12. And the mum kicked off at her daughter, but then decided to make her out a victim. He's been arrested for, you know, aggravated sexual offence. And the other girl who was jealous has also decided to say he raped her and things like that. And so he's in prison, you, you, you know. Um, and then there's this white mum with two 12-year-old boys who has given her 12-year-old boys drugs to give out to, you know, I was doing some outreach in a park. <laughs> you see these two boys um, going to these adults who parked up their work vans, giving them drugs. Mm -hmm. And they've been involving their mates as well. You, you know, um, I remember doing an armed robbery because my dad was struggling to pay the bills. And I got the money and I, I, I gave it to my dad. And my mum came along and kicked off, where would you get all this money from and all that, and gave me the third degree. And so she told me to get out and take that stolen money with me. And um, so when she'd gone away, I said to my dad, I said, well, You've got all these watches you keep collecting. Let me buy all them watches off you. And he he was up for it. He he was well up for it because he was skin and <laughs> he was working, but he all his money went on bills and he he was struggling to cope. Um, you know, and he and it used to make him cry. But my mum was quite adamant. My mum found a way to cope <clears throat> with with the cost of living crisis at the time. She got a group of um, friends, about 15 friends, and they all used to put in a tenner. And every week, they'd take it in turns to have the pot. 
weren't a lot of money, but it helped when you when you got when you're you haven't got a lot. Mm. So um looking at this mum with the two boys, I could see the desperation, the same desperation I had. And and for some of the kids that get involved in these gangs that will buy your food at McDonald's or um they will take care of any bullying issues. They'll give you a lift to school and befriend you. And they, they're using kids to befriend kids. And I can see the um, the desperation that some of these children have, you know, in wanting that money to help their family. Um, and it's very hard, you, you, you know. The solution, I mean, kids are carrying knives because if you are involved in a gang, you've got to protect the, the product otherwise you're going to get it um this um 14 year old boy from london came to margate to sell drugs but where he'd never seen the seaside before forgot his drugs and the money in the bag and left it on the train he went to a petrol station with some money he had in his pocket and bought a tow rope to go and hang himself and um, it's the way he did it, I think someone followed him and managed to stop him before he was able to hang himself. I mean, he had seen what the gang does to other children and was petrified. He thought, well, I might as well kill myself. going to die anyway. Um, and he was a white kid. But um, there is a lot of black-on-black -black violence amongst young black boys. And it's petty stuff. Um, you know, um, and you, I've worked in a children's prison. I've seen some horrible issues, but they're, they're, yeah, they have come from these backgrounds. Um, um, the way there is a, the way there is a way, I think, to, to, to solve it, but I don't think it's a way the government will be interested in, in doing. They'll rather look for other ways, you know, whereas I think that, because um, I've experienced myself as a child, some of these models and, and adult, I, I think there's so many, um, there's so many prisons that have been shut. I think if they were to um, revamp them and turn them into small communities with um, a school in it, um, a healthcare centre, um, some shops. Um, um, better uh, living quarters and, you, you know, with these kids and, and training and everything, the ones at risk you could take off the streets and put in these places. And initially they're going to be in a place where you haven't got a lot because that you've got to unpick that negative behaviour. And I had therapeutic help. You have psychodrama and all that kind of stuff. To, um, and, and I think these kids need to have that specialist help to unpick that negative behaviour. Then you've got to teach, you know, give them an education. You've got to teach them how to um, manage, um, you know, uh, um, you, you teach them um, people skills. You, um, you, you know, you put them in an environment which is like society, but it hasn't got those um, dangers of people trying to groom them and, um, and and being in dysfunctional families, and and it's secure. Um, and you've got um, 
business people who will give them a job after they've got their education or they could be asked if they'd like to go into the forces and the forces once they've had that behavior negative behavior unpicked they could go into the forces some of them but what you're going to do you're going to produce children who are young adults who um are not at risk anymore or, they could go into the wider society and be able to um, um, have a better chance at life. And you, uh, they got new hope. And these gangs are not going to be able to tempt them because they've had all that negative crap unpicked. They're in a better position. They could go back into their families and provide in some way and contribute in some way. Um, and so for those at risk, I think they need that type of thing it works you know whereas if you try to give them that kind of help whilst they're in the community they're still a target whilst you you know it's like Anne longfield has decided to try and provide this type of help um for kids in the community and their families but the gangs can still get at them whereas these prisons they won't be prisons anymore they'd be like um uh small there's housing in there do you know what i mean um and and so you're not decriminalizing the kids you're you're reprogramming them um and you're you know they're they're in a place where you you know they can live um peacefully the 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 male and female staff are surrogate mums and dads um with skills um, for want of a better term, do you know what I mean? Because um, they're helping these kids to have what they should have had, really. Um, so you can do that with the ones at risk. And and I think it will make a change. You're, when you let them go into the wider society, they'll be better human beings, um, you, you know, because you've put something in them, um, you, you know, and I think you can apply that model to, um, drug addicts in Scotland you can have a community where all the help is geared to help them with their issues you can have that same kind of model with people with mental health issues where all the help provided but the cost for um, to, to revamp that place to have the, the right staff with those um, you know professional skills to be able to work with you, you know um, is costly but in the long run it saves a lot more money. I think it's worth doing more than what the suggestion of Anne Longfield did. You know, I I, I, I don't think that um, she she's trying to do a good thing, but I think that um, the money would be better used to to do a model like that. And I, and I think that um, you're rescuing kids. Um, in a much better way than if you tried to help them where they're at, because it's um, there's too many outside influences that will will try to destroy all that. How can people get hold of you to book your services through our website? Okay, we'll we'll put a link below. That's what refocus dot something. Yeah, www.refocusproject.org.uk. Um, they can there's um uh a referral um page as well um you know and um they can um if they fill in the referral form it gets sent 
to us and um, we respond, um, you know, but we, we specialise, I specialise now in rescuing kids um, from those types of situations and also um, I'm a qualified mentor coach, I'm registered with the CIPD, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, um, I've got an equivalent master certificate with them in um, learning and development, um, you, you know, so I, I like to practice good practice. And, um, you, you know, so if people need our help, I'm helping adults and I'm helping kids. Um, the youngest I work with is eight years old. The oldest is older than myself. And, um, you, you know, we use our lived experiences and various other things, depending on what people need um, to help them you know, so they they can get through to us um, on our website, and um, you can also get through uh, get a book from the website as well. Um, how's, how's the book been doing? Really well. I'm just about to um, sign a contract to do the um, audio version of the book. So, you know, later today I'll be um, uh, testing myself, reading it, recording it, and sending it to the book people. But um, yeah, so we're going to do an audio version. It's, it's been doing really well. Some of the um, comments, I mean, a lot of um, people have who have put a um, review on, they've said it's been hard to put down, the book. Um, but um, Good. So that's the kind of book I like to read. So, um, yeah. So, and the money goes to, for, to help us help other people, help other people. So we, I've got a lot of young guys that I've helped turn their lives around and they're now helping other young people turn their lives around i get a lot of referrals from kids referring kids um you know so um it's all good brilliant and you're up there in kent for anyone that's watching yeah and i work all over the country now i used to just work in kent and southeast london but because of the demand um, I mean, the furthest person away that I've been helping is Southampton. Um, but, uh, you know, Oxford, I've done, I've done Surrey. I've had to go to Surrey because an eight-year-old boy took a knife into school to stab his classmate. And I've gone in and we've done a, a session to help them and that. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I, I raised my own funds. Um, and so uh, we've managed to raise some funds to help us to travel to other places um, uh, and help people who just really haven't got the funds to be able to afford, you, you know, the help. Um, so we thought that was important, but we, we practically go anywhere. I mean, I'm working with um, a local prison and when some of their inmates come out and they've got to go to areas outside of Kent, um, I still support them, you know, and help them um, through that journey um, to break the cycle of offending. Mm. Lennox, it's been a fascinating chat, mate. Thank you so much. I'm uh, obviously delighted that you're, uh, your life's in a good place. Yeah, yeah. And you're able to give so much back. And uh, I always say, like, the past doesn't exist. <laughs> it's only now, isn't it? We've only got now. And um, and uh, you're, uh, you're seizing the day. I wish you the best of luck with the book as well. Um, we'll put all the links below the podcast. 
friends at home hope you enjoyed this as much as i did if you can like and subscribe uh if you want lennox's services uh there'll be a link below for the website and uh much love to you all thank you yeah well thanks again chris hey no prop no problem friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris thrall instagram chris dot thrall thank you